Welcome to season three of the Bible for My Ordinary Life podcast. My name is Alicia Parker and I'll be your host. Are you interested in what the Bible really means or wondering how it's relevant to life today? If so, this podcast is for you. In this season, we are going back to where it all begins, the book of Genesis. No matter what your age or your background or your experience is with the Bible, I believe you can find something fresh and meaningful every time you study it. Hi, my name's Ariana. The Bible is for everyone. <laughs> Thanks, Ariana. All right, friends, let's get started. Hi there. Thanks for joining me today as we continue studying the book of Genesis. Today, we are going to meet one of the most interesting characters in the Bible, a character that will leave us with more questions actually than answers. And I've learned to be okay with that since I know that although we have questions, we serve a God who has all the answers. We're going to cover all of Genesis chapter 14 today, but the first half will get a little less attention than the second half. In verses 1 through 11, there's a description of this epic battle between four kings who attack five other kings. And I'm going to let you take the time to read verses 1 through 7 on your own. There's a whole bunch of really hard to pronounce names in these verses, and I can do more summarization that's a little easier without all that cringy mispronunciation I would undoubtedly do if I read the verses. So here goes. Basically, there were four kings with a king named Shedalomar, who is the main leader. And they've banded together, and they have five other kingdoms subject mainly to this Shedalomar. In year 13, the five kingdoms tried to rebel, but it wasn't successful. And in the 14th year, Shedalomar leads a raid on about six different kingdoms, which are probably maybe more like independent city-states. And after the raid, the five kings under Shedalomer's rule decide to line up again and battle this guy and his three other alliances. Now, according to scripture, it's like this epic battle. And among the kings fighting, Shedalomer and his crew happen to be the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah. Now, according to verse 10, the battle took place in the valley of Siddim, which had asphalt pits or some versions say bitumen pits or tar pits. So there's the summary. Now let's pick up in verse 10 of Genesis chapter 14. Now the valley of Sinem was full of tar pits. When the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, they fell into them, but some survivors fled to the hills. The four victorious kings took all the possessions and food of Sodom and Gomorrah and left. They also took Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions when they left, for Lot was living in Sodom. Now, it's in these verses that we realize why the first 10 verses are included. It was important context to the part of the narrative that will become really important to our central character, Abram. Hopefully, you remember who Lot is. The last time we talked about Lot was after Abram left Egypt and his herdsmen couldn't share the resources for their herds with Abram's. Abram gave Lot the pick of any of the land, and Lot took the very best, but also placed himself as close as possible to one of the worst cities he could have chosen, Sodom. Now, we don't know exactly how much time has passed, but did you notice where Lot was living in verse 12? It specifically said this. They also took Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions when they left, for Lot was living in Sodom. 
You see, in the previous chapter, we read this. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, but Lot settled among the cities of the Jordan Plain and pitched his tents next to Sodom. So since we last heard about Lot, he's moved from next to Sodom into Sodom. And now he's got big problems. The king of Sodom is under attack and the raiding party captures Sodom, all the people living there, and much of the food and material wealth of Sodom, and they carry him off. Now, when I read these stories, or really anything I read for that matter, I always envision in my mind what's happening. And often I have a familiar movie or show or like place I've been as the scene that I relate to. So when I read the scene, I have this vision from the movies The Lord of the Rings, which I know is probably ridiculous. And if you've seen these movies, you know that there are all kinds of non-human creatures that fight in these epic battles. And a particularly large battle at the end of this trilogy takes place in a great, huge plain. It's a scene in this giant battlefield, and these two sides clash in a major war. There's all this fighting and death and destruction. And of course, the good team ends up winning. I envision this scene something like that. And if this was a movie, I imagine the camera would zoom up close to Lot and we'd see him being taken hostage by invaders and carried off. And we'd see the people running for their lives towards the distant hills, some making it and some falling into tar pits to their death. Now, the version I read today said this. When the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled... When the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, they fell into them, but some survivors fled to the hills. Now, this English translation makes it seem like the kings themselves actually fell into the pits, but we're going to see shortly that the king of Sodom didn't die here. Other translations simply note that some people fell in the pits and that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah were defeated here. So regardless, we've got this epic battle and Sodom and Gomorrah as cities are defeated. Okay, next scene, and it shifts to Abram. Remember, he's living by these oaks of Mamre, distant from the fray, minding his own business, which he could have kept doing. But instead, he's about to get involved, which was probably very risky business. Here's what Genesis 13 through 16 says. A fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew, now Abram was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eskel and Anar. All these were allied by treaty with Abram. When Abram heard that his nephew had been taken captive, he mobilized his 318 trained men who had been born in his household, and he pursued the invaders as far as Dan. Then, during the night, Abram divided his forces against them and defeated them. He chased them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He retrieved all the stolen property. He also brought back his nephew Lot and his possessions, as well as the women and the rest of the people. So someone cared enough about Lot to come find his old uncle Abram and give him the news that Lot had been carried off and was in danger. This person is only identified as a fugitive. And for the very first time, Abram is identified as a Hebrew it's a name that will be used later to describe his descendants, but for now, in the place we are in this narrative, it's distinguishing Abram from the other tribes and the people groups in the area that we find the narrative taking place. I have to picture this scene with me. This massive war just took place involving nine different kings. 
And the victors have carted off Lot as well as probably thousands of prisoners and all kinds of material wealth from their conquests. Abram gets the news from one fugitive who's able to sneak back and let him know that his nephew's in danger. And Abram responds by gathering 318 men. 318! So Abram and his 318 men are going to go after these four kings that just decimated Sodom and Gomorrah and raised several towns and cities along the way. These odds are laughable by human standards. But nothing is impossible with God. So again, I just have to imagine this like a movie scene. The raiding kings and all their armies have probably set up camp somewhere to the north of Abraham. And it's actually probably been quite some time since Lot was taken and this fugitive actually makes it back to Abram. In fact, we know Abram has to travel quite a distance to pursue them. So the scene shifts to the armies that have just wreaked havoc across this valley and throughout this region. And Abram gathers his men and goes off to pursue them. And he finally catches up to them, Abram and his 318 men. And perhaps their camp, the enemy camp, is full of soldiers that are partying. Or, or maybe they're just drinking and getting drunk. Or maybe they're actually all asleep. Abram's 318 men sneak up on this camp. And I see the scene in my mind of these thousands of troops whether they're drunk or partying or sleeping or whatever. And on the outskirts of the camp, we've got Abram dividing his tiny little troop up and coordinating this attack. And in the dark of the night, with the element of surprise and a God who keeps his promises, Abram defeats these armies. And he retrieves Lot and all of his possessions and the women and all the rest of the captive people, the Bible says. And so you have to imagine these captives being thrilled at Abram's victory, and now this huge party of liberated captives head back toward camp. Now, technically, these people and all the possessions should belong to Abram and the people that have helped him. They are the reward for the victory. And here's what verses 17 through 20 say. After Abram returned from defeating Shadalomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram in the valley of Shavah, known as the King's Valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was the priest of the Most High God. He blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by the Most High God, creator of heaven and earth, worthy of praise is the Most High God, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. And now we've arrived at the character in the story I mentioned in the opening few moments. Melchizedek is one of the most interesting characters in the Bible. Now, you might not seem so if you read this quickly and don't connect the dots to the New Testament. So let's slow things down just a little bit and see what we can learn about Melchizedek. Verse 17 says that Abram returned from defeating Shedalomar and the kings that were with him. And it's the king of Sodom that comes out to meet him in the valley. And this is how I know that the translation doesn't mean that the king actually fell into a tar pit and died. He's clearly still alive. He's lost his kingdom and his people and his possessions, but he's there. And he comes out to this valley, the Valley of Shiva or the King's Valley, and meets Abram. And Melchizedek also comes out to the same spot to meet Abram. And Melchizedek is introduced as the king of Salem. But there's also this parenthetical note that he's a priest of the Most High God. And he brings bread and wine and blesses Abram. So pause here with me. The king of Salem has yet to be mentioned until this moment. 
Now, admittedly, I skipped reading some of the verses in the chapter today because of the complicated pronunciation of king's names and city names, but I promise, Salem wasn't in those verses. Salem wasn't part of this war. But Salem is probably the same place that eventually becomes Jerusalem. Most of the texts I studied agreed with this conclusion, so there's a pretty fascinating connection happening already. But also remember that at this point, the author's been building on an assumption that Abram is the only person on earth worshiping and following the one true God. Yet this king of Salem is also a priest. And Abram recognizes this and receives a blessing from him. And Abram's response to the blessing is to give him a tenth of everything he had. Now, the only other person to ever have a title as priest and a king is Jesus himself. And later on in the Old Testament, God establishes a system for the nation of Israel to tithe a tenth of their earnings to those who were in the priesthood. Since if you were in the priesthood, your vocation was temple service and you couldn't produce your own food or possessions through farming or manufacturing. So there's all of this foreshadowing of what is going to happen occurring in this narrative. Salem, which will become Jerusalem. A king who is a priest, which typifies Christ himself. Bread and wine, elements of communion and a tithe of 10%. So all of these are little nuggets that we find in the story of foreshadowing. Now, I don't often do this since in my podcast, I like to teach through books of the Bible and not skip around too much. But there is an important New Testament passage that these verses are connected to. So I am going to turn to Hebrews 7 and read the first couple verses of that chapter. Now this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham as he was returning from defeating the kings and blessed him. To him also Abraham apportioned a tithe of everything. His name first means king of righteousness, then king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, he has neither beginning of days nor end of life, but is like the Son of God and he remains a priest for all time. But see how great he must be? If Abraham the patriarch gave him a tithe of his plunder, and those of the sons of Levi who received the priestly office have authorization according to the law to collect a tithe from the people, that is their fellow countrymen, although they too are descendants of Abraham? But Melchizedek, who does not share in their ancestry, collected a tithe from Abraham and blessed the one who possessed the promise. Interesting, isn't it? These verses confirm much of what we've just read in Genesis, but also add some additional information. The author of Hebrews points out that Melchizedek had no beginning or end, and he had no genealogy, that he was like the Son of God. Now, I'm in no way going to attempt to explain all of this in my short podcast today. I actually listened to a one-hour podcast interview of a man who wrote his dissertation on Melchizedek, and at the end of the podcast, he admitted he still didn't know exactly who Melchizedek was. Some think he was Christ himself, appearing as human. Others think he was not born of human means, but appeared, filled this role, and then disappeared. Others think that this language in Hebrews is more figurative in nature, and Melchizedek was an actual person with a birth date and death date. But let's be honest. 
these verses leave us with more questions than answers. And I've said this before, and I don't mind saying it again. I don't have all the answers, and I never will. Whoever Melchizedek truly was, we know that he meets Abram, and there's an exchange between them, a blessing and a tithe. Melchizedek bestows a blessing on Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. So it's clear from these words, they worship the same God. And the blessing concludes with praise for God who gave Abram the victory. So again, it's clear that God deserves the credit for what Abram was able to do. Then Abram responds and gives Melchizedek the tenth or the tithe. So it's very clear that Abram recognizes Melchizedek and responds appropriately to his blessing. But the verses aren't through. We also read about another exchange here. Remember how it wasn't just Melchizedek who met Abram in this valley? The king of Sodom also met him. Abram is returning with the spoils of war, the prisoners who were captured and the possessions that were taken. So the king of Sodom makes Abram a deal. He tells Abram if he, the king of Sodom, can have his people back, Abram can keep the loot. Now, this might sound like a pretty good deal, but Abram is wise and he declines the offer. He doesn't want this king to take any credit in the future. He doesn't want to ever owe this wicked king or be tied to him in a favor exchange. Abram's only motivation in helping him was to rescue his nephew Lot. And so all Abram allows for is payment for the food that the people ate on the journey back home. And if his allies wanted war spoils, they could have them. But Abram even states, I don't even want a shoelace from you. Verse 24 mentions that Aner, Eskel, and Mamre went with Abram to assist in the raid and that Abram had aligned himself with them. And so he returns all the people and the goods to the king of Sodom. And we can probably assume that those three allies of Abram took their share of the plunder. And everyone goes back home. Story's over. Well, at least for now. So as we've been going through Genesis, we've talked about a few different themes that emerge. And one of them has been the promised seed from Genesis 3.15. We've encountered a few possibilities, but no one yet who meets the criteria and fulfills the promise to break sin's curse. We've also paid close attention to what we can learn about God's character and what we can learn about patterns in human behavior. In this story, God gives Abram victory in an impossible situation with odds stacked against him. He also, in doing this, saves Lot, who some might wonder if he's worth saving. I mean, wasn't Lot the one who moved into Sodom and away from Abram and the Lord? But let's remember this lesson that we've talked about earlier. God is faithful to us, even when we are unfaithful to him. So God cares enough to rescue Lot through Abram. And we see Abram courageously going after this nephew of his, being successful with the Lord's help, and then correctly refusing to receive compensation from wicked kings when it was clearly the Lord who enabled his success. So we see here, it is possible to learn from our mistakes. Think back to Egypt. Abram had not quite gotten it right in Egypt. He left with more than he entered with. But this time he nails it. And he passes by the offer for material wealth from the king of Sodom and instead 
receives a blessing and then gives a tithe to Melchizedek. So Abram's actions here give me some hope because even when I make mistakes and get it wrong, it's absolutely possible to get it right the next time. And actually, we're going to see this pattern a few more times in Abram's life. I just love that part of studying the Old Testament. I believe these are true stories of real people who had similar experiences as we do in terms of grappling with a wide range of human emotions and temptations and experiences. And these narratives, they offer us hope for our own lives. And hidden in them are little gems like the king of Salem coming out to meet Abram and his king who's also a priest. The foreshadowing of the promised seed. And we get a little glimpse of who Jesus will be, the king of the Jews. The Jews who will be headquartered in Jerusalem, which this priest king comes from, this city called Salem that means peace. Melchizedek, the priest, is a picture of Jesus, the highest of high priests. And Melchizedek foreshadowed Jesus, encounters Abram, the forefather of the Jews, out on this plane and offers a blessing. And I'm telling you, this kind of plot makes for great movies. But it's even better than the movies. It's real. It happened. And the very same God that gave Abram victory is the same one watching over you and me. The same one listening to our prayers and the same one helping us in our battles. We may not know and understand everything he does. I've read a lot of commentaries on Melchizedek, and I think he was probably a human with a birth date and a death date. But not everyone is convinced of that, so I could be wrong. And I'm okay with that. Because here's what I do know for certain. Genesis is the story of our beginnings. It's a true story. And the God in the beginning, the God of Genesis, is the same God today, the God of our lives. And he'll be the same God in the end. So my trust and my hope is in him. Abram got some things wrong, but he also learned to trust, and he got some things right. And despite his humanity, God used him, and God helped him when he needed it. Let's take comfort in knowing that when we read the pages of the Old Testament, we are reading about the one true God who is just as active and involved in our lives as he was in the lives of these people on these pages. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope you enjoy what you heard. Don't forget to leave a review and connect with us on Instagram. The Bible is for everyone.